0: John chapter 5, we'll be starting at verse 1. It says, after this, after he healed the nobleman's child, he says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. and these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first, and after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. And so the basic theme for the first four chapters, what we've been seeing is basically the witness. The witness, as John referred to Jesus as the Word, as John the Baptist entered into the equation and we, we saw that he was the one to make the path straight as he was the example of the last of the Old Testament type of prophet pointing to the coming Messiah. We saw Andrew and, and, and then we saw Jesus and the miracles and the signs that pointed towards who he was and We see even this this nobleman in the previous chapter, last week's study, how he believed and he and his whole household were saved. We know that the next natural response after the witness is going to be opposition. Anytime that you share God's word, and we need to share God's word, there's going to be opposition. Matter of fact, you only know that you're doing it properly when there is opposition. Opposition. If there's not opposition to when you share God's word, if there's not opposition to how you live your Christian life, you need to consider, have you watered it down somehow, some way? When the gospel is shared, there's always going to be one of three responses. So anytime you have the opportunity to share the word of God, there's going to be one of three uh, responses. First one is the desirous one. People are going to get saved. There's always that potential. Now, we don't know what the Holy Spirit is doing. We saw that in John chapter three, but there's always that opportunity whenever the word of God is shared that somebody would get right with Christ. Second response, I'm sure a lot of us have experienced. I know I was this way for a period of time, indifference. Well, that's good for you, or that, that's a real nice story, but I just don't believe in, I'm just gonna go on my way. And then there's going to be the people who oppose. Now, indifference seems to be the one. That's the greater majority of the people. Opposition, I think opposition, there's not as much as far as in-your-face kind of opposition. There will always be people that talk against the gospel. But I think a lot of things, or a lot of people who are frightened as far as sharing their faith, going door-to-door, going street-witnessing, they're afraid of that in-your-face kind of opposition, and that very rarely happens. Yes, people are opposed to the gospel, and they may blow you off. They may not want to hear what you have to say. They may even have an argument against it, but very few people become very violent. I don't mean violent. Well, I guess I should mean that, but um, very few people will get in your face against it. But nonetheless, when you share the word saved and then in opposition, I think we can put both indifference and direct opposition. Now, not only will opposition come from the world, but opposition will even come from unexpected places, from even the religious community. Why? Because a lot of times when God's doing a work, he uses common people. He uses our, our, our basic relationships. He, he uses our, our common conversation. Matter of fact, I think the most effective means of evangelism is just two people sitting over a cup of coffee you know, let me tell you about what the Lord has done in my life, or somebody who's going through a hard thing and being able, having that opportunity to share Christ. It's Christ entering into the fabric of our relationships. And so that being the case, there's going to be those who, well, just because you're not doing it what they consider to be right, just because you're not doing it according to their traditions, there's going to be that opposition. The opposition that we'll see here to Jesus' witness comes from the Jews, the ones who you would least expect it coming from. Now, Jews in John's Gospel, he uses that term a lot. And it's not just simply, well, he's not speaking ethnically here, but to address the religious leaders who opposed Christ and His message. Now, if you read through the Bible bus, we saw an example of this in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 11 Verse 26, there's Moses and and other people are coming alongside of Moses and they're filled with the Spirit and they're doing a work for God. It says in verse 26, though, of Numbers chapter 11, but two men had remained in the camp and the name of one was Eldad and the name of the other was Medad and the Spirit rested upon them. Now, the Holy Spirit came upon them for the purpose of of ministry. So in other words, God is, is in what they're doing. Now they were among those who were li- or those listed, I'm sorry, now they were among those listed, but who had not gone out to the tabernacle, yet they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men, answered and said, Moses, my lord, forbid them. And the idea is they're not doing it right. No, but what they're doing is they're speaking God's word. That's what a prophet does. But his concern is, is that they're not doing it according to the established pattern. Then Moses said to him, are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. And again, we can kind of be the same way. Hey, I heard somebody's having a Bible study at their church. I'm not sorry, at their house. I would wish that we would all have Bible studies at our houses, that we would all go and minister and invite people in our neighborhoods to come and to hear the Word of God. And we can so be of the mindset, well, if if you're not in here and listening to the share word here, then you're not doing it right. Well, it's as the Spirit moves and as the Spirit desires to meet and reach people. Because if you had a Bible study in your house, maybe one of your neighbors would feel a little bit safer coming to that than even coming to a church. And so as we have opportunities to share God's word, we need to take those opportunities. Just don't come to church, start a Bible study and come here and invite everybody. Invite people who don't know Jesus, that's the idea. Mankind so easily becomes an old wineskin, but God is constantly wanting to do a new thing. And so, God wants to do a new thing, and it's a little bit different. Some of the nuances, the word doesn't change, and we can so get our dander up over that. And we start getting into this big tug-of-war with God, God wanting to do a new thing, and us wanting to hold on to the old ways. Well, guess who's going to win a tug-of-war with God? Look at your lives. Who's won the tug-of-war in the past? God always wins. He's a lot stronger than you. So, that being the case, we need to be open to the new thing that God wants to do. The new people or the new way, whatever it might be, but we can't get ground in to just simply our traditions and our ways of doing things. We must be open to the leading of the Holy Spirit, although we will always be rooted in the Word of God, mindful of man's needs. So in the case of Christ, and His healing of this paralytic man, we have a portrait of the conflict that will exist again verses one and two after this there was a feast of the jews and jesus went up to jerusalem again whenever a jew goes to jerusalem he always goes up to jerusalem and the jewish mind that is the dwelling place of god now there is in jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool which is called in hebrew bethesda or the house of mercy having five porches So John chose to include all of this detail so that we would know that this is an actual event. Why would that be so necessary? Because for 1,800 years, there was no record of Bethesda or this five-sided pool. They couldn't find it. I don't know how hard they looked for it, but it was non-existent, and it was doubted if this really was a true story if this really existed. And so for centuries, the story was doubted all the way up until 1856. Through a series of diggings, this five-sided pool was discovered in ancient Jerusalem. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were examined, Bethesda was mentioned. Now, again, we could have Zinni come up here because I'm sure she was at the Pool of Bethesda, were you? Yeah. Oh, she's got it on her phone. So after service, you can go to Zinni. She just got back from Israel and she'll show you the pictures, okay? But I was there as well. It's huge. It's maybe the size, the digging area is maybe the size of this room or so. And it's pretty deep. And so you can imagine if it got filled up, it'd be pretty hard to find. And even if they found parts of it until they got it all excavated, they probably didn't really understand what it was that they had to find. And so again, God obviously knows these things. And so that's why we have a lot of the detail in the scripture that we have that we would know either it's just flat out not true or if it is in the word of God, we would have this detail so that we would know that we need to catch up with the Bible in our exploration. Verse three, and these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. What we need to see here in these people are the humbled, the helpless, and the hurting, seeking desperately to change a condition that is unchangeable. And so we can be so bold and we can be so, so busy people, but what happens when that condition hits, that you can't do anything about. I mean, it's then that you know your dependency is upon the Lord. But again, these are people lost. They're, they're lost and they're, they're part of a society, but in actuality, they're not really part of a society. And so they're by this pool and they're desperately seeking this healing. They're, they're seeking to have their lives changed and change so much for the better. All of these conditions are considered to be unhealable. It, it It was beyond them that a, a blind person, a lame person, especially a paralyzed person, and we still cannot necessarily heal these things today for the most part, and so they're destined for the rest of their lives to be immersed in that condition and and as as great as science is today, although we still can't heal, we can make things a little bit easier. just think of how harder they were back then and how much more dependent you were on other people. The person that was stricken with us really was going to live a life that was stricken. And so the picture here is sinful man groping helplessly for a solution for his condition. And again, not being able to do anything for himself but seeking an outside source. And so the spiritual comparison to the physical condition And again, you should be able to relate to this before you were saved, blind. You were blind. You were completely blinded to the things of the Lord. And you could not open your eyes. You could not change that condition. It had to be the Lord entering in. And again, if you're a born-again believer, how did you get there? Somebody shared the gospel and the Holy Spirit empowered that and worked through it. And that's what gave you vision. Jesus just said earlier in our study in John chapter three, verse three, as he was talking to Nicodemus, it says, Jesus answered and said to him, most and surely I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So unless one is born again, he's blind to the Lord and the things of the Lord. Then there's the lame, the crippled, the crippled. They have no ability to walk a Christian walk. We expect the world to live as we live. We find it so surprising that they have legalized gay marriage. Well, to the worldly mind, that makes sense to them. Abortion, to the worldly mind, that makes sense to them. They're not going to think as we think. We need to share the word, bring them into the kingdom of heaven, and then God will change their walk. In John chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up that last day. It's only through the Father that man will be able to walk, that man will be able to come to him. And then the paralyzed. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit for without me, you can do nothing. And so spiritually speaking, a person apart from Christ is no different than that paralyzed man. He can do absolutely nothing for himself. Now the children tonight, they're they're digging into Romans chapter 3. And if you look at, we're not going to go there, but if you look at the epistle of Romans, what is John, I'm sorry, the apostle Paul, through the first three chapters really doing? Well, in the first two chapters, he's gingerly laying mankind in his coffin. He's talking about the heathen and they're without excuse and they've changed the, the word of God and the perception of God and, and, and so he, he's eternally lost. And then you have the moralist. He thinks he's a good person, but there's none good, no, not one. And, and then you have the, the Jew and even the Jew, he blasphemes the name of God by commanding people not to do things but partaking of them himself. He can't keep the law. And then, as he has gingerly laid mankind in the coffin, you enter into chapter 3, and he hammers the door shut. And he goes through that list. There's none who seek after God. And he just continues going after, after, after. And he comes to the conclusion to such a degree that you're without excuse. But then he comes to Christ. And so the idea, spiritually dead, spiritually paralyzed, whatever it is, however it is that makes the best sense to you, man is unable to do anything to rectify his condition. And so that being the case, we have to see and understand and know just as surely as this man needed to meet Christ to be healed that day, it's us who needed to meet Christ on the day that we were healed, and it's others who need to meet Christ for the day that they will be healed, and the Lord achieves it once again through the spoken word and through the power of the Holy Spirit. But these people, even today, the ones that were talked about, treated as outcasts of society. It can be so uncomfortable being around somebody who has some kind of physical infirmity because you so easily place yourself in their position. What if that was, what if that was me? What if that was me who, who lost the ability to see to walk or to use my limbs or or whatever it might be? Or or what if it was one of my children or or something like that? So we don't like to look at stuff that's not pretty or we consider to not be pretty. I'm not saying they're ugly, obviously, but just things that are undesirable for us. And so we kind of just set them aside. And I really believe, as we'll see here, that's what they were doing. It was go wait at the pool and wait for the angel to stir the water. And who's ever in first, this person's going to get healed. So if that was you, well, maybe it'll work. Maybe, maybe this is going to make a difference. So, what are they doing? They're just groping in the dark. Why? Because they have nothing better. There, there's, nothing, there's, there's no other hope in, in, in their mind, in their way of thinking. Verses 3 and 4. And these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease that he had. Now, there's some, and my uh, Bible has a footnote. Yours probably has some sort of one. There's some earlier manuscripts in which verse 4 isn't included. Now, there's two ways to look at this verse. First of all, this is a manner in which God has chosen to heal. So, an angel, he'd send an angel down uh, at a certain time, a certain time means nobody knows exactly when, into the pool, and he would stir up the water, kind of a, a an angelic jacuzzi, then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. Well, that's all fine and dandy, except for these people are blind, lame, and paralyzed. I mean, how in the world are they going to get in? I, I don't know if it counts if somebody throws them in, but... Again, it's kind of a cruel thing if you think about it, to, to lay people by the side of a pool and to say when there's a stirring, first one in gets, sa- or gets healed, saved, in case the illustration works there as well. That I don't see God working that way. I don't see God working that way at all. I see the traditions and, 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 and thoughts of man working that way. It's very possible that these verses, are a, or this verse is a parenthetical statement added to clarify verse 7. Verse 7 says, The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. And so if verse 4 wasn't included in that, you really wouldn't know what this man was talking about. It's been said that this stated occurrence either... Is a Jewish superstition an old wives' tale or simply man's desperation? And so, as I don't see God, I I don't believe. I believe, obviously, that this is part of the Word of God. i believe that it's included here so we can see the desperation of man. We're going to be looking at some of the Hebrew traditions, and I believe that this was a tradition or superstition or whatever it might be. But the fact of the matter is you need to see that these people, not only are they in a hopeless condition, but they're even being tormented in their condition. And I would imagine somebody apart from the Lord who has whatever condition it might be, and you hear on the news the, the latest cure or possibility of a cure, and it probably stirs something within them. But unless God does a work, you're just not going to see it come to pass. Verse 5, Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. And so connecting this with traditions, with sin, and the law, Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 14, and at the time, and the time we took to come to Kadesh Barnea, Kadesh Barnea was the jumping off point to enter into the promised land. Where in the period of time as Israel's wandering through the wilderness. Until we crossed over, the valley of Zered was 38 years. So just as surely as Israel wandered in the wilderness, unable to enter into, if you will, that blessed Christian life for 38 years, certain man was there who had an infirmity for 38 years. I would imagine, I don't obviously know from experience, but let's just look at a blind person. It's one thing to be blind from birth. It's got to be quite another to be able to see for a period of time and then to become blind. I would imagine that would be very hard. I'm, I'm, I'm not that one's so much easier than the other, but the fact of the matter is, and I'll, I'll tell you why, a, well, further on down, where is it? Um, In verse 14, afterwards, Jesus found him, this man that he healed in the temple, and said to him, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. It's very possible that the condition that he was suffering with came about because of some sort of sinful situation. And so he knew about this. He knew that his condition was basically his fault. So you can really see the magnitude of the grace and the mercy as Christ intervened and moved in this man's life. Verses 6 and 9, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked, and that day was the Sabbath. Now just consider that. This guy who thought he was more than likely going to be spending the rest of his life in that condition, all of a sudden his life has changed at the spur of the moment. What changed his life? What changed his life, again, is the same thing that changed your life. It was simply the words of God. The words of God that were spoken to him that entered in and altered who he was. And again, it's the same picture as our salvation. This day, this man was doing what he always did. I was doing what I always did on that particular day, but Christ met me in a very personal way, and Christ ought to have met you in a very personal way that the change was so profound that just as surely as this man is able to walk, you were able to see and you were able to walk as well. It's the way that the Lord works in those who are groping and those who are helpless. It's that appointed day of salvation. And so this healing, it came about not from man's ability, but simply by the spoken word of God. Jesus meets us as we were constantly trying to put ourselves into the water, but never could. It was not until we were washed clean by the word of God. Washed clean by the words of God that our sins were taken away. It's the point behind what Paul was saying in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 There's an amazing thing that transpires. There's an absolute miracle, and the absolute miracle just simply came by the word of God, and it should say, and all the city of Jerusalem rejoiced. But that's not what happens. The religious leaders had their nose at a joint. Why? Because Jesus didn't do it the right way. When we first started our church, I've mentioned this before, I don't remember the young man's name. Some of the guys that were here may remember him. I remember him, but, but not his name. But nonetheless, he got saved in our church. He started coming in the evening service, the midweek service, Thursday night. And he gave his life to the Lord. And, and I, I was very sure about that as I was able to sit with him and some of the other guys and talk with him and, and just see that the conversion was real and the conversion was genuine. And he did the next natural thing. He went home and told his mother about it. He thought his mother would be really excited about it because his mother would go to church every weekend or every Sunday, and he went and told his mom that he's a Christian now. I've I become born again. And she told him, we're not Christians, we're Lutherans. He wasn't happy about the experience at all. Yeah, it, it's funny, but it's so sad. It, it, it's so sad. And, and that's the same exact thing that is going on here. And the only reason it's listed here is because it's been going on throughout the ages from the religious community. we got to make sure that we're not like that, that people, you know, they got to get saved according to how we think it needs to be done. It needs to be done how God determines it needs to be done. Verse 10, "...the Jews therefore said to him..." So they, they saw him, they're in Jerusalem, so there's a lot of Pharisees, there's a lot of priests, there's a lot of Sadducees. "...the Jews therefore said to him who was cured..." It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. So they're probably standing there and they see this guy carrying his bed and say, wait a minute, what are you doing? It's the Sabbath. You're not allowed to do that. It's like they're almost telling him, go back and be paralyzed. I mean, it makes no sense. Verse 11, he answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Now, obviously, we know everything is Christ-centered, but just be of the mindset that it's the speaking of the word. It doesn't matter who speaks the word. If Christ would come, He would would still give the same authority to His word as He gives to His word as it goes through you. He honors all. And so... You know, I've had people bring people to me and say, you need to preach the gospel to him. No, you need to preach. I mean, I will, but you need to preach the gospel because your words carry the same weight as my words as long as it's all rooted on the word of God. And so, again, the witness, just as John the Baptist said, I must decrease, we're to be transparent. We're just that avenue through which or that conduit through which the word travels. Verse 14, afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Now in verse 10, the apostle John wants us to see the contrast between Jesus and the Jews, between the minister, the ministry, and the legalist, the one who tried to thwart the work that God wants to do. Now Jesus, consider this. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. In the Old Testament, it's the Lord, Jesus, who commanded that the Sabbath be well, come into existence. Jesus is also the one who commanded this man to take up his bed and to walk. And so if the Lord of the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, tells somebody to take up the bed and walk, because, I'll get into this just a little bit in a, in a little bit, but a Jew was not allowed to do, and through their tradition, he was not allowed to do anything. And so somebody carrying a bed, they would think that he's doing work, and he would be disallowed from doing that. Matter of fact, in actuality, he's taken his life in his hands. So the Jews, they say it's unlawful to do so, and so we've got this conflict between God and man's religion. And if you know God, you'll see a lot in religion that relies upon tradition, but not according to the Spirit. And so, who is right here? Well, we obviously know who is right, but to look at this and examine the evidence, we need to make a determination and examine the Sabbath as given by God, and how does it relate, and how does it even relate to the church today? Because there's a lot of people out there that will try and impose the Sabbath. In actuality, what they're telling you is you're not doing it right. When do you, you know the last and the first? When do you go to church? And you'll say Sunday if you're part of our church, and they'll tell you you're not doing it right. I mean, can you imagine? Yeah, I'm going to church. I'm worshiping the Lord. I'm giving. I'm sitting. I'm being taught and instructed in the Word of God. And we're not doing it right. You know, again, it, it, it's foolishness and it makes absolutely no sense. Um, the problem is, for immature people, it's going to tear down their faith. And what they'll say is you need to go to church on Saturday because Saturday is the Sabbath. Now, the problem with that is you're going to start thinking that you're more holy because you go to church on a Saturday rather than a Sunday. And what does that do? That once again enters in self-righteousness that, religious produce, that religion produces. And I've got bad news for you guys. The majority of Calvary chapels, they have their midweek on Wednesday. So we're kind of renegade in that. It's just the way we've always done it for no other reason, but... And so, which is right? Is it Wednesday or Thursday? Well you say, Pastor Mike, it doesn't really matter, does it? And it doesn't. It doesn't really matter at all. And so, first thing we need to look at, God's example when examining the Sabbath. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth, and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, and here it is, it is a Saturday. The seventh day is Saturday. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all of his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, or he set it apart. And so this is special to the Lord, because in it, he rested from all of his work, which God had created and made. So when it says he rested, it simply means he ceased from working. And so God set a standard here. And we should be able to relate to that. We need a day off. We need a day of rest. It's very beneficial. Next, to determine the relationship between the Sabbath and the church, we need to see the original command. Turn over to Exodus chapter 31. Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 through 17. So much more is written, but we'll just look at this section. First of all, the Sabbath was instituted as a sign to the covenant that God had made with Moses. I'll expand on that in just a minute, but first looking at the verses, Exodus chapter 31, verse 12, Israel's out in the wilderness, Moses is getting instruction. And if you look at the previous verses about building and constructing the temple and how God was to be worshipped, it says in verse 12, "And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel not speaking of all humanity or speaking to the nations or the Gentiles, speak to the children of Israel saying, surely my Sabbaths, now notice Sabbath there is plural. So he's talking about Saturday. He's talking about taking every seventh year off and every year of Jubilee off. Now consider that to the people that are telling you that you're supposed to be worshiping on Saturday and not working on Saturday, well, if it's still true to the church, and if that's a reality, then they need to take every seventh year off. And I guarantee you, they're not doing that. They need to be keeping the year of Jubilee. Paul says, if you keep one little bit in Galatians of the law, it does you no good unless you keep the whole law. And let's just whittle it down for them for just the Sabbaths, plural, that you got to keep all of the Sabbaths. I bet you not one of those people that try to put that burden on people have enough faith to take a year off of work. Verse 14, You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, uh, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord." Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath. Now again, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and who? The children of Israel. And it says forever. For in the six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. So why aren't the Jews keeping the Sabbath today? And you may say, well, they don't have to because of Christ or whatever. No, they haven't received Christ. We're talking in general terms. But as a people who have rejected Messiah, they need to have a temple up on the Temple Mount. Sydney, that's still not there, right? There, there's no temple on the Temple Mount, right? Still that, that Islamic thing. So there's no temple, so there's no sacrifice. And so there's all these things that they need to keep doing since, I mean, if Messiah truly didn't come. And part of it is the keeping of the Sabbath, They're in violation of God's law. So now what did God previously do? He dumped all of this, and I just use that, that language as, as just to understand the burden of it, All of this means of how God is to be worshipped and the law and the keeping of the law onto Moses who was to deliver it to all the people. And as they got all of this load of work to do concerning the tabernacle, which will eventually be the temple, and the sacrifice and all of these things, the Old Testament system, that was a system of works. Every day the sacrifice had to be made. Every day you had to make sure as far as the things that you were doing and if you became defiled and the festivals and the days and keeping all of these things. Well, the Christian in the New Testament, he's been commanded simply to go and work in the field as an evangelist. But either way, you need that day of rest. And this kind of changes things because it's not a day to worship God. That was for the six days of the week. The seventh day, the Sabbath, you were to rest. It was a day that really wasn't designated for the worship of the Lord. And so those people that are commanding you to do these things on a Saturday, that's not really what the intent was. The intent that you would take the day off and spend it with your family, that you would rest and rejuvenate your body. Now, problem is dedication to work will always overshadow dedication to relationships. We see that as it plays out to the person who's a workaholic. got to go to work today. I can be this way. Got to go to work today. Got to get this done. What are you doing? You're leaving your family, and you're going, and you're doing those things. Well, I do the same thing, or we can so easily do the same thing with our relationship with the Lord as well. Got to do this, got to do that, and all of a sudden, you're busy doing this and doing that, and you're not worshiping God. And your relationship, just as your relationship, if you're a workaholic, will suffer with your family Your relationship with God will suffer even when you're involved doing all the religious things. Work so easily becomes a priority over the people and even our relationship with God can take a back seat. Going back to John chapter 5, we have a perfect example of the church here in chapter 5. What exactly did we see in this paralytic man? Verses 3 and 5, again, a man who had absolutely no rest. He had to be put down at that pool. There had to be the stress and the strain of trying to get into the water, wanting to be in the water. This disease is a picture of a sinful man then seeking out the cure is a picture of man trying to save himself through religion and that work just simply never ends. And then verse 6 What happens here is, is Christ meeting that man. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? Now he's speaking to a man who is frustrated by works, or a man frustrated by his condition. Jesus asked him, do you want the rest that you're looking for, that you're searching for? Verse 7 The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. What he's saying is the rest that I'm looking for is unobtainable. I cannot attain that rest. I can't get into the pool. I can't do what, well, the only thing that we determine that can be done for my condition. And then Jesus says in verse 8, Rise, take up your bed and walk. What has He said to us concerning His works? Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. A word that Jesus freely gives. Freely gives and now has released this man from his bondage. Verse 9, and immediately the man was uh, made well, took up his bed and walked, and that day was the Sabbath. And so really what you see here is, this man for the past 38 years is experiencing the first real Sabbath. The first real Sabbath, he doesn't have to, no longer does he have to worry about the burden that life had become in his life. He has been set free, set free of that condition that he can do absolutely nothing about and he has now found his rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's had many Saturdays, but this is the first true Sabbath. And then again, entering into verse 10, verses 10 through 15, I'm not gonna read it. But the religious people, they simply don't understand. It's why they rejected Christ. Now, as a Christian, what do I need to know about the Old Testament Sabbath and its fulfillment in the church age? Well, as I mentioned time and time again, the Sabbath was intended for the Jew only, In Exodus chapter 31, the verses that I read there, the Lord made that perfectly clear as He mentioned it three times. This is to be to the children of Israel, and it said to the children of Israel forever. There was that rest on the seventh day, the seventh week, and the fiftieth year. The problem for the Jew is that the Sabbath, it became a bigger day of work than any other day. They imposed all of their traditions upon it. The limit of travel on the Sabbath day was 1,000 feet. Now, if you went the day before the Sabbath, say you had to go 10,000 feet, and you took food and you placed it within 1,000 feet of your house, you could journey for that 1,000 feet. And they said, if there's food there, well, we'll determine that to be your dwelling place, so you could go another 1,000 feet. So you could kind of leapfrog wherever you want if you, pl- if you planned it out right. You laugh, and I mean, this is true, but you laugh because how ridiculous that is. You could not carry a load heavier than a dried fig. Again, this is Jewish tradition. That's why they would see this man carrying his bed and say, hey, you're not supposed to be doing that. This, I don't know how true it is. I don't remember where I got it from, but it said that you could not take a bath because some of the water could spill out on the floor and that would be considered washing the floor. And so uh, if you had false teeth, you weren't allowed to wear your false teeth that day. You'd be walking around like that. Why? Because you would be carrying a load. And so all of these things would need to be considered. Why? Because you're in violation of the Sabbath as the Jews, as the traditionalist religious had defined it. Proverbs 30, verse 6 says, Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. And that's exactly what has happened here. Secondly, as far as the Sabbath and the church, Jesus did not always keep the Sabbath. He did not keep the Sabbath based upon their terms. And then, thirdly, is Sunday the Christian Sabbath? No, the Sabbath is for the Jews, and the Sabbath is not for the church. The church has chosen to worship on Sunday because it's the day that the Lord rose from the dead, it's the day that he ascended into heaven. It's the day that the Great Commission was given and it was the day that the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. And so if you don't agree with that and you want to have church on Saturday, go for it. Go for it. As long as you're in God's Word and you're worshiping Jesus, it just simply doesn't matter. I don't want to become a reverse legalist. Saying, well, if these people are doing church on Saturday, then they're bad people. They're not. Matter of fact, when are we... What's the best day? Every day every day, to have a heart to seek after the Lord Jesus Christ every single day of your life. In Mark chapter 2, verse 27, Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for men. It's for you. This was a gift from God to the Jew, but it was a gift from God. Take the day off and it's on me, he's saying. It was a gift for him and not man for the Sabbath. And so the only thing from my life that even approaches the Sabbath is the day of my salvation. Just the same as that paralyzed man, it's that day that I found rest in Christ. Paul addressed it in Colossians, and we'll close from here. I'll just read it, Colossians chapter 2, verses 13-17. through 17. He's going to use the Sabbath, but he's talking about all elements of the law. It says, "...in you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses." having wiped out the language of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He's speaking of the law. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now he's talking to believers. The law no longer applies to you. You're not going to be judged according to the law. Now through the law, I understand what sin is and I want to be kept from sin. But as far as judgment day, the law is not going to be brought out and I will not be judged according to the law. It says here he nailed it to the cross or he crucified it. Verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, demonic realm, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Let no one judge you. Now, this is something we have to, we have to hear. Let no one judge you in food. Uh, we were at my mom's the other night. We had some pork. That's not going to send us to hell. I mean, it's okay. It's unclean, says, unclean, but, but it's okay. Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival, or a new moon, or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. The substance is our relationship and the things that Christ has done and the rest that Christ was given us. You were paralyzed. You were by that pool, and religion told you when the angels came and stirred it up, if you could get in, then you would be made well, but you could never get in. You could never be healed. You could never have peace. Your conscience could never be put at rest until that one day when Christ spoke through whoever it was that he sent into your life, and then all of a sudden, you were released from that burden, and the Son set you free, and who the Son sets free, he's free indeed. Father, once again, we just thank you, Lord, for the the magnitude of this wonderful salvation Is so great a salvation, Lord, that you have freely given us. And Father, I pray, Lord, until we grasp onto it, until we find joy in our relationship with you, we're not going to be able to give to others. And so, Father, I pray that we would be a people who understand and realize the magnitude of the salvation that you have given us. And Father, we would learn to appreciate it and rejoice in it. And as we do, Father, may we understand, Lord, how lost the lost truly are. Again, they're like that paralyzed man. And they're, they're relying upon tradition and old wives' tales and superstitions to set them free, but they never will be able to achieve that. And so, Father, as we have the truth, may we continue, Lord, to rejoice in it, but also to share it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We